Morning, everyone. It's good to see you out, and welcome to those online as well. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Paul Graham, and I'm lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside, and we are uh, in the middle of a little mini-series on prayer, and so we're going to get to that in just a minute. I just wanted to highlight that Saturday of February 4th, um, that morning on Saturday, we're going to be talking about uh, basically how to give biblical counsel. And uh, the upshot of it is, is that probably almost all of you have been in that situation where a friend has come to you, another Christian, maybe a non-Christian, um, you're having a coffee, uh, their life is in some sort of crisis point, and they need some intentional discipleship to get them through that point. And you know the Bible says something really amazing about this, and you want to speak biblically and not Dr. Philly. And so Saturday is how is just a basic introduction to how we understand how sin affects us in the world and disorders our lives, and understanding how uh, the gospel reorders everything in our life, and how we can speak biblically into a myriad of different situations that people find themselves in. And uh, Because I know we want to do that as disciples. We want to speak biblically into people's lives. And so uh, Saturday morning is largely about equipping ourselves to be capable to do that and not feel like we are grasping or not able to speak biblically into people's lives and even how to speak biblically into non-Christian lives Um, because all truth is God's truth and uh, his truth will set people free. Uh, So that's what Saturday is about. Um, Last week in this series on sort of rejuvenating my prayer life and hopefully yours, (laughs) we looked, as we always should, away from ourselves and we looked towards Jesus and what he has done and accomplished. And uh, it, it was a week in the past week to spend meditating on what he's accomplished. He made it possible for our human spirit to be alive towards God. And he gave us his spirit, his Holy Spirit, that we might know God and have the Spirit's help in prayer. And he tore down the barrier that stood between us and God because of our sin. And he became the one mediator between man and God so that our prayers can be heard and we can enter into God's presence with confidence. And we don't need any special sacrifice or high priest or religious accomplishment in order to have confidence before the throne of God. And then finally, he disarmed all the old authorities in our life. He disarmed sin and death and darkness so they would have no more power over us. And he granted us new authority, his authority, over all creation and all powers and principalities. So our prayer is possible and powerful because of Jesus. That's where we looked. But as we read through the New Testament, now we come to this week, and he knew the other shoe would have to drop. We find that the teaching of disciples like Peter and James and Paul and John, as well as Jesus himself, that that even for Christians who have all of those wonderful truths made real and all those promises are yes and amen in Jesus, there are ways in which we can make it impossible for our prayers to be answered or delay answers or not hear answers that are given. It's possible for our prayer life to become ineffective. Now that we know and delight in who has made our prayers possible and how they can be powerful, what I want us to be conscious of this morning is the posture in which we should take ourselves forward in prayer. We need to know the kind of prayer that is effective. We want to know what kind of prayer is effective. We want to know if there's any barrier to our presence with God and to our prayers being answered. And so we need to know the kind of prayer, or perhaps it's better said the kind of prayer, meaning us, 
or praying person that is effective. Just because we know how to pray and by whom we pray doesn't mean every Christian all the time is praying well. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at. If we want effective prayers, we should learn from Scripture what is effective and what kind of prayer is the most powerful. And uh, so I just want to pray before we open God's Word. Father God, we come to you today, even as I am now, into your throne room, into your presence, which we sometimes take for granted, that we can just do this, that you are always here, you're always everywhere, you know what we're going to say before the words are on our lips, or even in our mind, and yet you call us to come into your presence in this unique way, and say, Father, here we are. And so, Lord, I just pray as we, as we look at your word, as we look at what you've spoken to us by your Holy Spirit and by the apostles, that, uh, that we would not deviate to the right or to the left, but that we would know what your Holy Spirit is revealing to us in these words today, and that we would have even greater confidence in our coming to you in this manner, knowing that our prayers are effective. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So as we open up God's Word, I, I want to consider four answers that were given to that specific question. What could make our prayer ineffective, or what makes prayer effective? And, and the first one won't be a surprise. It may be a bit discouraging at first in terms of powerful and effective prayer, uh, but one verse from James may have already jumped into your mind already about what powerful and effective prayer is and who a powerful and effective prayer is, and it is James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And so right off the bat, we see that effective prayer is righteous. Now, that's a scary verse. What can it mean for us to be righteous, for a man to be righteous, to pray powerfully? It seems like we're guaranteed to fail right off the bat very first point of the sermon, and we're already failing. That's a bad start. We, we know ourselves too well to call ourselves righteous. We have long memories for every word and action and thought that has brought us shame in our life, or it would if it was known by others. And it seems impossible that we could be righteous. The Bible tells us that no one is without sin, and if we say we are without sin, then we make God a liar in 1 John 1, 8-10. So where does that leave us when James says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective? Well, God is merciful and God remembers that we are weak. Psalm 103.14 tells us that God remembers that we are dust. And rather than look in us to find righteousness, God has instead submitted his own son and given us Jesus to grant us his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So when James says the, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, there's this sense in which he's saying that our righteousness is not based on our good works and efforts, and that because we've behaved properly and, and, and our righteousness is granted to us by God because we've been such good people as though we've earned his favor, that would literally be self-righteousness. Rather, Christian righteousness and purity and cleanliness, here written holiness, and and qualification before God is exactly the other way around. It's not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. It's his cleanliness, it's his qualification. And, And he then enables us to do good works before God. There's this incredible parable 
that Jesus himself teaches to some particularly self-righteous people, because there were lots of self-righteous Pharisees and religious folk in Jesus' time. And, and he had a special message for these people that believed in their own righteousness. And, and it's told in Luke 18, 9 to 14, and, and I'll just summarize it here. There were, uh, no, I'm just going to read it. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, so, so he's telling us who he's telling us the parable to. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So you see, it's not our righteousness that we come in prayer with. It's Jesus' righteousness. So when we go into our prayer closet, when we come before the throne of God, our Father in humility, it is God that covers us in a righteousness of his own. And so if you read that verse in James and you think, I can't even enter into the presence of God because I'm, my prayer is not going to be powerful and effective because I'm not righteous, that's exactly the moment when you beat your breast and you say, Lord, have mercy on me. And you have the imputed, that's a fancy word for the granted righteousness of Jesus, cover you. If you desire to lay hold of effective prayer that comes from righteousness, you have to first lay hold to the righteousness that comes from God through Jesus. That imputed righteousness is sort of a summary of all we talked about last week, about what Jesus has done for our prayer. He's made us righteous. But God doesn't finish there. We have to consider all of Scripture, not just the bits and pieces of it. And although our righteousness is rooted in Christ, there's an expectation that it will be worked out in our lives through obedience. And Paul explains that connection between what Jesus has done and our obedience in this way. He says this in Titus 2, 14. He says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And so Jesus gave us a righteousness that is not our own. And he gave us in that righteousness an eagerness, a desire to obey God in doing good. And this is part of the righteousness that we come to God in prayer with as well. Or as E.M. Bound phrases it, Prayer governs conduct, and conduct makes character, and conduct is external, seen from without, but character is internal, operating within. Character is the state of the heart. Conduct is outward expression. Character is the root of the tree. Conduct, the fruit it bears. And so there is a Christian conduct. There is a Christian obedience and eagerness to do good that should flow out of our Christ righteousness. And this is the righteousness that James tells us makes our prayers effective. Because the reality is, as we sin, we distance ourselves in our own measure from God. We make it difficult to pray effectively because our sin taints our prayers. Because our sin clouds our understanding of the will of God. And so therefore, our sin and our lack of obedience can cause our prayers to be ineffective as they do not align with God and his Holy Spirit and the righteousness that he would have for us. And so if we're praying feebly, we may ask ourselves if we are living feebly. If our prayer is weak, then we can ask ourselves how strong is our hold on Christ's righteousness and how faithful is our obedience to it. 
And so righteousness makes itself visible in obedience, James says. If we're disobedient, our prayers lose their effectiveness. Or rather, I think as we are disobedient and our prayers lose their effectiveness, we recognize in retrospect that the Spirit takes over our prayer. And God begins to answer the Spirit's prayers on our behalf. In effect, to return us to obedience. If it seems like there's a barrier to your prayers and what you're praying for and how you're praying, take into consideration this, that God is always more interested in making us holy than making us happy by answering selfish prayers. God wants us to be happy without question, but he wants us happy in holiness. And so the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective because they are in line with the holy desires of God and our happiness and our joy and our delight in his holiness. And so effective prayers are prayed rooted in the righteousness of Jesus and working out that righteousness in the way that we engage with our life and in our conduct. So first of all, our prayers are righteous, starting first with Jesus. But secondly, our prayers and effective prayers must be sincere. And this is what I mean, and I, and I think Jesus and James mean what they speak of our hearts towards God. Our, our prayers must be sincere in the sense that we understand the need that we have for God and what he has for us while rejecting what we think we need for us. James says it this way. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That's the insincerity. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That's the wanting what we want. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so this is what I mean by effective prayer being sincere. Sincere prayers are sincere about what we're asking for for ourselves. They're honest in our hearts about what we're asking for. And they're sincere in their attitude towards God. What do we sincerely believe about God and who he is and what he would have for us? We have to be honest with ourselves and God because we are never free of our flesh in this world and we live in the world and it's very easy to deceive ourselves that our wants and needs are selfless when they are in fact selfish. I've actually sat with well-meaning Christians who were literally praying that God would make them financially independent so that they can serve him full time and use their wealth to support ministry. Now, I'm, I'm sure that that has to be somehow tangled up with fleshly motives, right? I, I hate to doubt the guy, but can you pray that God makes you a millionaire so that you can be an independent pastor and use the money for his kingdom? I guess you can do that, but man, the level of sincerity that is required to untangle that from your own motives, I don't know. There certainly are people who God has blessed that way. They've been made very wealthy, and they use that wealth for God and his glory. But I doubt that they were made wealthy in answer to that kind of a prayer. That prayer sounds a lot like the Pharisee of Luke 18. Thank you, Lord, for making me different than all these other men, for letting me serve you and for giving me money to tithe generously. I mean, maybe our prayers are not so obviously enmeshed with our own passions and desires, but they can be less obvious. We have to be gut-wrenchingly sincere about our motives in prayer. James paints a vivid picture of how transparent we should be before God. He says a few verses later, 
In 4, 7 to 10, he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, James is saying we are double-minded. We are insincere. And that's uncomfortable imagery when it comes to prayer. It sounds like the opposite of the joy that we are seeking. But James, when he says grieve and and turn your laughter to mourning, James is talking about our friendship with the world. He's talking about the false pleasures that come from false selfish desires. James is saying take yourself to task. Subject your desires to a good working over to make sure that they are not double-minded desires, impure or insincere. Humble your personal desires before God. And then he will be the one that lifts you up into joy. And he will be the one that lifts you up into delight and happiness that is from him. His will for you is better than your own. Now, that doesn't mean that every desire of our heart is wrong. But we should be more than a little suspicious of what comes from our flesh. The sincerity that God desires is an honest rejection of the pleasures of the world and an honest, sincere love for him and what he offers instead. Thomas Brooks, in a sermon delivered to the British House of Commons, this was in December 30th, 1648. And let's just pause for a minute and, and maybe hope that God could return Canada to a time when pastors are asked to give sermons in Houses of Commons. That would be great. <laughs> but anyway, Thomas Brooks, delivering this sermon to the British House of Commons, he titled it, God's Delight in the Progress of the Upright. That's what God delights in. He's he's delighting in his will for us, in our progress. And he opens up the sermon. One of his very first points he opens up with, he says this, an upright heart hates all sins, even those which he cannot conquer. And he loves all divine truths, even those which he cannot practice. That's the starting point of uprightness. That's the starting point of sincerity. We come before God and we hate all of our sin. Even the sin that we may still be practicing, we hate it. And we love all the truth and the uprightness and righteousness of God, even those things that we know we're not practicing. And we start there in prayer. That's the sincerity of heart that God is asking for. We need to sincerely hate our desire and sincerely love God's truth. It's the same sincerity of heart that our Luke 18 tax collector had. He beat his breast. He humbled himself. He acknowledged his sinful state. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he still wanted nothing except what God had to offer him. So that's a hard level of sincerity and honesty to reach. But your prayers may not start out that sincere. And you may be struggling to believe the truths that God is merciful and that his blessings overflow to us. And you may be doubting that he intends good for you and not evil. You may question if he's even there or paying attention. You may doubt that he's finally in control and sovereign over every detail of the world. You may not love those divine truths yet. But you start there desiring and sincerely wanting to love that truth. You may be struggling to hate your sin and hate your own desires because they seem so pleasurable on the surface and they seem so right to you at this moment. But as you look in Scripture and as you pray back to God the truth of himself and you ask yourself with sincerity that you see how he sees, then you will be doubly sincere. You'll be sincere in your desire for understanding and truth and sincere in your understanding that you want what God wants for you, and awe and worship of God, and hate all sin in contrast. 
So our prayers must be sincere. That level of gut-wrenching sincerity about our own sin and about God's truth. And we not be double-minded in anything. And then thirdly, effective prayer is faithful. Or perhaps it helps to say trustful or full of trust. James 1, 5 to 8. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And so James says here quite clearly that this can cause our prayers to be ineffective, to not be faithful, not have faith, not be trustful or full of trust, that God will give and God will answer. Peter has nothing on James for bluntness. If we're to pray, we are to pray in faith, not doubting but trusting. If you doubt, then don't expect results. And so clearly effective prayers are prayers that are prayers of trust. And so it's important we know what James means by being prayers of trust. The context of these verses is that they are James's answer to Christians who have not yet attained the maturity he opens this letter speaking of in verses 2 to 4. So so understand here, the purpose of this letter is that he is encouraging Christians and disciples to attain a level of maturity. Like Peter and like Paul and like John, James begins by encouraging the believers that the trials they meet produce faithfulness. That's the topic he's on here. You need to have faithfulness, and the trials that you are facing, Christians, produces that. And that faithfulness is making them complete and mature as Christians, lacking in nothing. So trials lead to faithfulness, and faithfulness or trust leads to maturity. But what if, and here's the question James is answering, what if a believer finds themselves lacking in this maturity? What should they do? Well, the Apostle Paul would say, live and be led by the Spirit in order to grow in maturity. Peter would say, set out your hope Set your hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ, and you will increase in maturity. And here, in the same pattern, James answers in his letter, pray for the wisdom of God to advance in your maturity. Because James believes that it is also God's wisdom that enables us to reach maturity, but that we must not doubt as we ask. So not doubt what? What is it that James is talking about here when he says, when you pray and you ask God, don't doubt? It's this. Do not doubt that God is going to do exactly this or that thing that we pray for. Don't, it's not about doubting that you know, God's going to give me a new car you know, or God's going to whatever. It is not doubting that God will bring us into this maturity that he has intended for us through our prayers. James is saying prayer and faithful prayer is the means by which God will bring you to this maturity. And if you don't pray in that faithfulness and with that expectation, then you will be a double-minded person, never reaching that maturity that God intends for you. So we pray trusting and full of trust that God will give generously exactly what we need of his wisdom for us and his good works and all that we need for life and godliness and joy in him. When we go to pray, we trust faithfully that God will give us exactly what we need. Prayer that is faithful is not merely that I trust God will do this thing that I've asked for me. That sort of faithful prayer may not even always be appropriate as we just talked about in terms of our lack of sincerity. We sometimes have to pray to God, don't give me what I'm asking for, God, because I don't even know if it's the right thing. 
I mean, I'm going to ask for it because I want it, but ultimately don't give it to me if I shouldn't have it. So, so the faithful prayer that James is talking about is not God's going to give me this thing. That's the, that's the prayer that James just finished warning us about, to not pray those things. Rather, faithful prayer here, trustful prayer here at its foundation is a confidence that God will be God and will act according to his nature and will not fail in our sanctification. He will not fail in bringing us to maturity. Our becoming more mature in Christ, if we ask in faith, will take place. Remember our Philippians series from a couple of months ago. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is Paul with the faithfulness, understanding what faithfulness is before God. He's saying, I trust, I am sure of this, God is faithful, and I know he's going to bring you to completion. That prayer is an effective prayer that is confident in God's nature and trusts completely in his desires before us. So when we go to pray trustfully before God, what we are trusting in is his nature and that his desire will be accomplished in us. And then finally, effective prayer is constant. We finish on this pose or this practice that prayer that is effective is constant. A person who has taken hold of the righteousness of Jesus Christ as his own and is cultivating a life of obedience to that righteousness, a person who has humbled themselves sincerely before God and acknowledges their double-mindedness and, and seeks to be sincere before him in what he prays for and, and, and not what the flesh wants, and, and that disciple that is praying that God will act out of his mercy and love with absolute faith in the trust in God to grant what is best for them, that person at the same time finally will be eager and outspoken and persistent in their prayer before God. I love how the Apostle Paul summarizes all of these things we've been talking about. Oh yeah, I already had it up there, sorry. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. I like that word constant, it's a solid word. When I say the word constant, I, I kind of imagine a stone pillar or a lighthouse standing like a bulwark before a raging sea. It's constant. It's been there forever. It's unchanging. It's immovable. That's the image we should have of ourselves in prayer. Our prayer life is to be unshakable, immovable, and, and, and our prayers are to conform to all that we've just talked about. Our request should be steady as well. It should be constant and steady prayerfulness and requests before God. Paul prayed this way. Romans 1, 9 to 10, he prayed without ceasing. I mention you always in my prayer. Then in Ephesians, he says, I do not cease to give thanks to for you. And then in Philippians 1 4, he says, In my remembrance of you always, in every prayer of mine for you. And then in 2 Timothy, he says, As I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. Night and day. So Paul has this constancy both to his teaching in how we pray and in his modeling of how he prayed. I pray constantly and in a constant way for you. And with regard to prayer, the word constant here doesn't mean like pray incessantly. Like every minute you are praying, it means stable and steadfast in prayer, to persevere in it, to stay at it, be devoted to it, don't give up on it, don't slack off on it, be habitual. It's the opposite of random or occasional or sporadic or intermittent. And unfortunately, sometimes my prayer 
Sounds like the last four words I said. Uh, Her prayer is kind of random and sporadic and intermittent. It's like, oh, when I remember, or when somebody reminds me, or if somebody says it, you know, or if I suddenly remember, or if something bad happens, then I remember to pray. But that's not the prayer that the Bible teaches us is effective. It's constant prayer, steadfast prayer, habitual prayer. Paul's calling Christians to make it a regular, recurring, disciplined part of our lives. And to not give up petitioning God to answer our prayers. Jesus will not shy about teaching us the necessity of our constancy in prayer. And I mean, one of the most amazing stories, parables, that Jesus tells to teach his disciples. He says to them in Luke 11, he says, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing and set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Don't bother me. The door's already been shut. My children and I are in bed, and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give, you, give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And so I say to you, ask and it will be given. To you, seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And him who knocks, it will be opened. Right? So, so Jesus basically says, like, even somebody who's already in bed and their kids are there and they don't want to step over them and wake them up and it's the middle of the night, even they will get up and give you what you ask if you just ask for it enough. So, so how much more, how much more is God going to be ready to open the door and give to you as you come to him with his requests? I mean, do you think God is asleep? Do you think he has to tiptoe around the kids to get to the door? God is waiting for us to come into his presence has asked us to come constantly into his presence. So do not give up in your prayer. Don't grow weary in prayer or become discouraged in prayer. The enemy hates prayer. Satan would love nothing than for us to stop praying. But prayer is the power of God that he has given us for change. That he has given us in our own lives first to change and to change the lives around us. And so we must be constant in it. We must be that neighbor that is knocking constantly on the throne room of God. And this is not to say that God is going to be slow and God's going to be grumpy about coming to give loaves of bread. Jesus is saying just the opposite. Your friends are grumpy. God isn't. He's not asleep. He's ready to come and answer your prayers. And so be eager and constant in coming before him. That's who we want to be. We want to be righteous, sincere, full of trust, constant in prayer, And God, help us in attaining that posture and that practice of prayer. We have all this righteousness and all this freedom to come into God's presence in prayer through Jesus Christ. And we have these simple directions from James and Paul. Be humble. Be sincere. Trust in the righteousness of Jesus. And conform your spirit and conform your mind, trusting faithfully that he will do what is right for you. That he will do. He, he may not answer that prayer or that prayer because that's not the prayer that helps you. He'll answer the prayer that moves you forward in your sanctification and in rescuing you and redeeming you and restoring your holiness, not necessarily your earthly happiness. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this season, short as it is that we get to just focus on prayer. And, uh, and even now as the music team comes, I'm just reminded they've, they've set us up with, a, with an opening song here 
Uh, we're going to do two to finish, Lord. And this first one's just going to be for us to sit and reflect on this reality of our prayer life and what you've called us to. And so, Father, as this song is playing and as the music team is singing, I just ask that we would just take a moment and reflect on our own prayer life. Where it is right now. How we feel about it. But more importantly, Lord, that we would reflect upon our trust in you. That we would reflect upon the sincerity of our hearts. That we would peel off the layers of this world and peel off the layers of what I need this week or what I want right now for me or for my family. Just peel all of those layers off and just trust in you. Just reflect that our prayer is powerful and effective when we put all of our hope in your wisdom. And when we ask for your wisdom and we ask for what you want for our holiness, then we don't need to be double-minded because you will give it. You are faithful and just. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.